Keepers Creepers. When I hear that phrase, it takes a lot for me not to break into song and start singing Frank Sinatra's rendition of the classic hit. It's not because I'm a massive fan of the song, but rather because of the 2001 film by the same name that's imprinted the song in my mind. When I watch Jeepers Creepers, and trust me when I say I've done so numerous times, I've never stopped to consider, is any of it real? You'd be forgiven for thinking it couldn't possibly be, as the plot is something out of a nightmare. But, did you know that the first part of the film is actually based off of a true story? If not, stay tuned. I'm Lauren, and this is The Truth Inside, Jeepers Creepers. Trish and her brother Darry are travelling home from college for spring break. To occupy themselves during the journey, they play a game where they try to make number plates of passing vehicles into words or phrases. As they drive through the countryside, an old truck recklessly tailgates them, the encounter leaving them spooked. When the truck eventually passes, Darry reflects on the number plate, beating you, or as it later comes to light, be eating you. Later on in the journey, they pass by an old building and notice the truck. They see a tall figure dumping something covered in a bloody sheet down a pipe. The figure appears to watch them as they pass. Disturbed with what they've seen, they continue down the road, attempting to call the police. The truck appears behind them, tailgating them again, pushing them off the road. When they come to a stop and gather their thoughts, they discuss going back to the spot where they saw the figure, concerned that someone might be in need of help. I don't want to spoil the film, but the rest of the screenplay is based on what happens when the brother and sister duo go back to investigate. Now, the supernatural nature of the film is indeed a work of fiction but the opening of the film is inspired by true-life events. It was the 15th of April 1990, Easter Sunday, and a couple, Ray and Marie Thornton, were driving along a quiet Snow Perry Road in Coldwater, Michigan. This was something they often did on a weekend, and to pass the time they were playing a game, making names out of number plates of vehicles that went past them. As the couple continued along the road, a green 1984 Chevrolet truck passed them at high speed. Marie noticed the number plate started with GZ, which made her exclaim, GZ, geez, he must be in a hurry. The couple laughed off the play on words and continued on their journey. Further down the road, Ray and Marie passed an old schoolhouse, and it was here they saw a man trying to dispose of a white sheet that seemed to be covered in blood. As they passed by, they saw a vehicle parked between the school and a large tank and realised that it was the same Chevrolet that had overtaken them earlier. Given it was 1990, mobile phones were not commonplace and therefore Ray and Marie knew that they were going to have to drive to find a phone in order to be able to call this in. On their way to do this, Marie tried to write down everything she could remember about the vehicle and the licence plate knowing that it started with GZ, given the reference she made earlier when she said G's. Before they could get to a phone, their journey, however, was interrupted. The truck was coming up quickly behind them yet again. Fortunately, it only followed them for a few miles before turning off into a lay-by. Knowing that they did not have enough information for the police, Ray and Marie took the brave decision, one that I can't say I would make myself, to turn around, find the truck and get the full licence plate information. They felt if they could get the licence plate, they could pass the details to the police. They found the truck, 
and as they passed by, they saw a tall man wearing a white hat standing at the back of the vehicle. He was changing the number plates. He'd also left the passenger door ajar, and Marie saw the exposed interior was covered in large amounts of blood. Both of them knew instantly something unspeakable had happened. They even returned to the schoolhouse to search for the bloody sheet. Despite their nerves, they felt it was the right thing to do. They wanted to find the white thing he was carrying. Eventually, they found a white blanket shoved into a small animal hole. This evidence solidified their belief that a horrible crime had been committed. Little did they know when they set off that day on their leisurely drive that they would witness the final chapter of a bitter conflict between a husband and a wife. So let's go back in time and understand what happened on the morning of Sunday the 15th of April 1990. 46-year-old Dennis Depew was on the way to his ex-wife Marilyn's home to pick up his three children as part of a joint custody agreement settled during their divorce proceedings. Dennis and Marilyn had been married for 18 years, with Dennis employed as a property assessor and Marilyn a high school counsellor. To people on the outside, they lived what seemed a comfortable life, and it seemed as though they were happy. However, inside the household, it was clear they were anything but. Dennis was withdrawn, and whilst they wouldn't fight, they didn't talk, the silence deafening in its own way. Following their divorce, Marilyn had confided in friends that Dennis was a bully and very controlling, and as a result, she was scared of him, even changing the locks of their house to try and prevent him from entering. Despite no longer living at the address, he was still using the guest house as an office, and despite Marilyn changing the locks in the house, Dennis had still managed to gain access to the house whilst no one was around. By using and having access to the guest house, Dennis was still able to maintain some control over the family, something which Marilyn did not want. When Dennis went to pick up his children, Julie, Jennifer and Scott, Julie, the youngest, refused to go and get in the car with her father. This prompted the others to do the same. This resulted in the start of an argument, with Marilyn becoming involved as she stood up for the children. This saw Dennis fly into a rage. He accused her of turning the children against him, and in anger he pushed her down the stairs before beginning to beat her, their poor children watching on. Jennifer ran to a neighbour's house to get help, but when she returned, Dennis said that he was going to take Marilyn to hospital. Sadly, this was a lie. Dennis never had any intentions of taking Marilyn to a hospital. They never arrived at any nearby emergency rooms, and this was the last time she was ever seen alive. When Ray and Marie Thornton saw a man trying to dispose of a white sheet covered in blood, what they were actually seeing was Dennis trying to dispose of Marilyn's body down an animal hole. The sheet was something Dennis had used to transport her body. Police had already began the manhunt for Dennis after the frantic call earlier from Jennifer, and it wasn't long before they connected the dots following the information they received from Ray and Marie. Forensics found tyre tracks and pools of blood. The tracks were later linked to Dennis's truck, and the blood matched to Marilyn. Marilyn's body was found the following day, her body discovered halfway between her house and the schoolhouse. Dennis had shot her once in the back of the head. Dennis, however, was nowhere to be seen. Dennis went on the run, and it was during this time he sent letters, 17 in total, to various family and friends. He tried to justify his actions, stating, and I quote, Marilyn had many, many opportunities to treat me fairly during this divorce, and she chose to string it out, trick me, lie to me, and when you lose your wife, children and home, there's not much left. 
I was too old to start over. Nearly a year after Marilyn's murder, a lady sat down to watch a TV episode of Unsolved Mysteries. Marilyn's murder was being played out in that night's episode, and the lady watched on in horror as she realised that the man, Dennis, was in fact her friend Mary's boyfriend. She immediately called the police. Please note, Mary is the name the lady would like to be referred to as, so we will honour her request. Mary was travelling back to her home in Dallas, Texas, the night the TV episode was aired. When she pulled into the driveway, she was surprised to see her boyfriend, Hank's, vehicle parked there. He usually kept the vehicle parked in the garage, so seeing it in the driveway was unexpected. When she entered the home, she saw Hank, and Hank told her that he urgently needed to leave to see his mother who was very ill. He said he needed to make an emergency trip home. He asked Mary to make him sandwiches for the road, although we've later come to learn that in reality this was just to keep her busy and to stop her from sitting down and tuning into the TV. Hank packed up his Chevrolet. Yes, the same Chevrolet that Ray and Marie saw on the side of the road that day, and gave Mary a hug and a peck of a kiss. She never saw him again, but would soon learn who he really was. The call into the hotline from Mary's friend meant that law enforcement could go after Dennis. The Louisiana State Troopers were the first to spot the truck, but when Dennis wouldn't stop, a 15-mile high-speed chase ensued. They ended up having to shoot out the back tyres to bring the vehicle to a halt. Dennis did try to continue to drive on just rims, but he did eventually stop. When the vehicle came to a stop, he shot at the police officers, before finally turning the gun on himself. Dennis is now buried in Indiana, his ex-wife Marilyn in Oakland County, Michigan. Whilst Jeepers Creepers is a work of fiction, Darry and Trish and their chance encounter with the Creeper is eerily similar to the chance encounter Ray and Marie had with Depew. Dennis may not be the demonic winged Creeper as portrayed in the film, but the scene Ray and Marie had to witness during their Sunday drive certainly served as inspiration for the film. It's chilling to think that the start of the film, at least, is based on a harrowing yet true crime. And perhaps that's something you'll give a bit more consideration to next time you watch the film. Thank you for joining me as we discuss the truth inside true crime, mysteries and legends from around the world. As terrifying or as uncomfortable as the truth may be, as Theodore Roosevelt once said, in the end the most unpleasant truth is a safer companion than a pleasant falsehood. Until next time. Thank you.